As you come now to the scripture, let me ask you please to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, we're grateful for having before us the very word of God. I pray that our gratefulness would be reflected in our attention to it. So help us. Help me, help us to give our minds to this word. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work it in us in such a way that our hearts would be given to it as well. That we would hear, understand, believe, and live. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Malachi, please, in chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4. I want to read the end of this, just verses 6. I'm sorry, 4 through 6. Malachi chapter 4, please. We're coming to the very end of this uh, prophetic book uh, that we've been in for the last couple of months. Malachi in chapter 4, please. Verse 4. Hear the word of God. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, come to the very end. We've been in this, as I mentioned, uh, for, um, I don't know, since September or something like that, and uh, working our way through uh, this prophet. So the question now is, what's he going to say at the end? How's he going to sum up all that we've seen, all that we've been through. How's he, going to, how's he going to sum that up? Now you remember that this word is given at a time in the life of ancient Israel when they've come back to Jerusalem after having been in exile. They were in exile really because of their sin. Now they come back out of uh, exile. They're in Jerusalem and they've rebuilt the temples, rebuilt the walls, but they're in a period right now of great spiritual decline. Uh, things haven't gone as they had hoped. And, and so we, fee, we see through this prophet, there are very few left in Jerusalem, in Israel at the time, that really fear God, that is, are humbled by him and to bow to him. And so there are very few who fear God. Thus, their worship uh, is really non-existent in, in the sense of real heart worship. Going through the motions, but not really worshiping God. And so the prophet comes in, as prophets do. Remember, prophets are, are, are covenant prosecutors. They come and they, they come to the people to, to reveal what God has said. Uh, they come to warn them concerning disobedience. And they come to offer a plea, if you will, on behalf of God and a command on behalf of God to return to repent. You see, prophets aren't really there to tell the future. That's not the primary role of a prophet. We often think of prophets as telling the future, but that isn't it really at all. The, the primary purpose of a prophet is to come and speak the truth of God. And has implications for the future, and sometimes they have insight into those implications, but really they're to come to lay out the truth of God and then to, to, to warn the people, if you do not abide by this word of God, then this will be the consequence. And then, in the midst of that, to call them back, to return to God, call them to repentance. And that's what Malachi has been doing through this uh, entire uh, book. So, so now, what's he going to say? What's he going to say at the very end? Last prophet, 
for some 400 years, last prophet before the John the Baptist shows up on the scene. And so he really, he really lays out two points at the very end in summary. The first is that they're to go back. That is, they're to remember the law of Moses, the statutes and rules that God commanded him at Horeb or Mount Sinai for all of Israel. He says, I want you to go back there. I want you to remember that. And then secondly, he's saying, I want you to look forward. Something's going to come. Someone's going to come. Elijah, really, the prophet. And this is going to come before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And, uh, and he says, and, and he has a particular work to do this, Elijah, who is to come. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to their fathers. And, and if that doesn't work, that is to say, that if that doesn't happen, then judgment will come. So these are the two things. So first, uh, why does he tell them to remember the law of Moses? Now, this word remember doesn't simply mean to think about it again, and to go back in your memory and say, oh, yes, that really is there. That really did exist, this law of Moses. But when the Bible uses the word remember, it, it means act. It means go back, think about that, and do what it says, remember. So when one remembers, one acts. When God remembers his covenant, it isn't as if he forgot it. It's now he's going to act upon it. So we're going to see him act. So he says, remember the law. He means go back to it and do what it says. Now, why would he say that? Well... He would say that because that's what got them in the trouble in the first place. Remember, this law, this covenant of God is the way that God relates to his people. And he laid it out. I'm your God, you're my people. This is how I'm going to relate to you. And this is how you're going to relate to me. And so the trouble they were in is because they didn't follow this covenant of God, this law of God. They didn't follow it. Thus, uh, they were in exile for a time. And now that they're back, still there's difficulties. Why? Because... They're not following the covenant. So he says, I want you to go back there. I want you to remember that. And if they would do that, what would they see and what would they do? If they would remember this law and go back to it, what would they see there in this law? And what would they do in response to it? Well, the first thing they would see is that this was a covenant of love. It was a covenant of love. It was a law of love, really. You remember, we've said this a million times, I think, through the study of Malachi. But, but when this covenant was first laid out, how did it begin? It began with God saying to them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He's saying, listen, I rescued you. And, and in seeing that, they, they, they would know that, that this God who established this law for them and with them and this covenant, that this God is the very one who loved them. Why? How would they know that? Well, because he rescued them. They were in, in slavery in Egypt and he went and got them. It was his initiation. He's the one who sent Moses. He's the one who empowered Moses. He, he's the one who ultimately turned Pharaoh's heart. And, and, and so he's the one who rescued them. And, and they, could, they could track the course historically from that place in Egypt to this land of promise and they would see God in all of that and there's a sense in which he's saying to them see I, I love you this is the basis of this 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 covenant and they would ask themselves the question well, why us why not other nations why did he come and get us and the answer is because he loved them and they would say well why do you love us is it is it because we're so impressive is it because we're so righteous and he would say, no, it isn't that at all. It's just that I loved you. 
and you were related to, to, to Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. And, well, why did, you, why did you love that? Well, because I loved them. I chose them to be mine. And you see, when they would go back to the covenant, that's what they would see, that God has loved them with a special, unconditional, electing love. And that should humble them. Not make them proud, but humble them. And they wouldn't be asking the question, why didn't you love them? But, but the question is, why did you love us? And that would be the baffling thing. Because all they could conclude is that God loved them because he loved them. God loved them because he loves. And he cast his affections upon them. And in that humility, they should fear him. In that fear, they should worship him. Isn't that true for us as well? (laughs) You ever ask the question, why is it that God has so loved me. Why do I know this? Why do I believe this? Why me? Is it because I'm so impressive? Is it because I'm so righteous? Is it because God really needed me on his team? And I've thought of that in the course of my life and I just can't come up with a reason why other than he's loved me. Uh, Paul in the epistle to the Ephesians lays it out for us. He makes the declaration, doesn't answer the question, but simply makes the declaration. He says in verse 3 of chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all insight and wisdom. There it is, you see. And I read that and I just go, all right. It's because of God. And when I read that, it doesn't make me proud. How could it? It humbles me. And it's to humble me in such a way that I would, in a biblical way, fear him, revere him, and bow, yield to him. That's what they would see if they came to this law of Moses. The second thing they would see in this law is, is that it would convict them of their sin. Then any doubt at all whether or not they were worthy to be loved by God in reading through this law, they would realize that, 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 that they're sinners and they need forgiveness if they're to live in the very presence of God. You know, as he lays out this law, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Have no other gods before me. That is, that is yield to no one else, trust no one else. And, and you can just read through the history of ancient Israel and realize that, that a great problem for them was idolatry, that even though they had this law and even though God had rescued them and even though they should have been humbled by that and by his love, but, but still they continued to follow after other gods and, 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 and that convicts them of 
of their sin. And then he says, not only that, but, but you shouldn't make any images of me. That is to say that you should worship me as I reveal myself, as I really am, not as you want me to be, not as you think I am, but as I really am. So, so, so study me, know me, worship me, not your image of me. And then he says, you need to live your life in such a way that honors my name. It never dishonors my name. How you think and how you speak and how you act. Don't take my name and use it frivolously. Don't have anybody disparage the name of God because of your life. And then he says, he says I, I control everything about you. So you need to take this day, this Sabbath, and you need to set it aside and gaze upon me so that you can get everything back in right order, right perspective. You need to do that. My your time is mine, God would say. And, and, and this Sabbath reveals that. And, and so you need to worship me. And in your worship of me, you need also to love one another. So children, honor your parents. Respect life, don't kill. Husbands, wives, live faithfully to each other don't commit adultery because you see that faithfulness that's evidenced in marriage then gets evidenced in all of the community and so love one another be faithful to each other see don't don't steal be content with what you have don't 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 bear false witness don't lie if you do that it'll destroy everything no one can be trusted i'm truth you're to live out truth so so don't lie. Don't covet. That is to say, don't desire the things of others that aren't yours. Be happy that they have them. Love them in that way. Be, be grateful that they have them. And, 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 and don't be desiring them that they have for your, yourself. And, and we read that and we, we think of that law and we apply it in, in all the ways, not just in our actions, but in our own hearts. And it convicts us of our sin. And so you see, if they would have done that, they would have never brought these unworthy sacrifices because they would have seen their sin and they would have said, we need to be forgiven. So an innocent one must die for us. One, one that has no reason to be killed. And so I'll bring an unblemished lamb, not this junk that I've been bringing to the altar, but, but I'll bring the unblemished one. Why? Because I, I see my sin because I've gone back to the law and, and I realize that I need to be forgiven. And isn't that true for us? That even as we're taken back, to the law it reveals our sin uh, James when he writes in James chapter 1 speaks of the law and he, and he says it's like a mirror we look into it and what do we see well just like the mirror that I have hanging in my bathroom it shows all my flaws <laughs> and I look into that mirror and uh, I go yuck and it's the same as this law I look into it and what do I see I see all of my sin. And where does that send me? Well, it sends me to my knees. It sends me to the cross. It sends me to this very unblemished sacrifice that was made on our behalf. And so I realize I need that. And so says, if you go back to the law, this is, this is what will happen. You'll see my love for you. It will humble you. You'll see your sin. It will humble you. And in all of that, then, then you'll turn to me. You'll, you'll worship me really and then as we, as we look at this law, if they would go back to it, what they would see is, is it's not only the love of God, but also their sin. But, but yet still this, they, they would see the very character of God, the holiness of God. They would see how it is that they're to live what would really give them life. 
this, this law of God. And, and they would say, God, please help me to do that. In the midst of being forgiven, in the midst of living under your rule and in your presence. Now, now God, help me live this because this is really life. And so you see, then if they would go back to this law and depend upon God really, then they would live in such a way that would be pleasing to him. They would, they would live not faithless to one another. As Malachi points out, they wouldn't live faithless to one another in their marriages if they went back to him, went back to God. And they'd pay their tithes. Why? Because they care about the poor. They care about worship. And because they see the very character of God in this law, they would never doubt that God was just. They would never doubt that God was good. They would see his justice and his goodness in the midst of this. And while they may say, God, when are you going to bring justice on the earth? they would never doubt that he would. And the same is true for us. By virtue of the gospel of our Lord Jesus, our lives look like this. We're amazed at the cross that God can love sinners. We go to this law and we see our sin and it'll either send us to try to do better or to ignore it were to go to the unblemished one who died for us. And so this law is to send us to our knees. And then as we go to our knees and we realize that this is the very love of God, not just in a general way, but in a very specific way for us, <laughs> then it really sends us to our knees because it humbles us. We go, the God of the universe has revealed this to me and I believe. And then you see, as we get up from our knees, we still look at this law and we say, God, I long to live like that. I long to be that. But I know I can't be because I've tried and I've failed, so help me. And he says, all right, by my spirit, trust me, live in me and I will, I will help you and this will be your life. So this word for them hundreds of years ago is a word for us. Remember this. But then he goes on like this. In verse 5 he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he'll turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. He says, listen, don't only look back, but I want you to look ahead. Now, there is this day coming, which is the great and awesome day of the Lord. This day of the Lord, this day of, really, they would think judgment and or restoration. The day when judgment will come and when everything then will be restored as it ought to be. And he says to them, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before that great day of the Lord. Now, he's hinted at this before. You might remember in Malachi chapter 3. And verse 1, Malachi puts it like this. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. And, and so he says, listen, a messenger is going to come, God says, before I do. Now, we understand that. A messenger is going to come to prepare the way before Jesus comes. That's the point of it. And that's what he's looking at there. So he says, now, this one who's to come, this messenger, is really 
Elijah the prophet. Now, Elijah, you remember, was a great prophet. He was a prototypical prophet. He was the great prophet at Mount Carmel, you remember, when the great battle or great scene contest between uh, the, the prophets of Baal worshiping this false god and, 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 and Elijah worshiping the true and living God. And you remember that, that great scene. Where he says to the prophets of Baal, set up an altar and, 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 with, and, and, and put a sacrifice on it and, and see if your God can uh, make that sacrifice, light that fire, if you will. Of course, their God couldn't, even with all the pleading of the prophets of Baal. But Elijah set up a sacrifice and he watered it down. He did everything he possibly could to make sure that no fire could start. And he called upon God and great prophet. You see, his goal then was to call the people to repentance, to call the people away from worshiping anyone other than God, call the people away from having anyone other than God define them and direct them, calling the people away from anyone, anything in whom they would find their delight outside of God. And so, so he calls them, you see, away from that. That's what he did, and he wanted to restore, Elijah did, the people back to this covenant. He wanted to get them back. He wanted them to return. He wanted them to repent and come back to God. And so that's what, he's going to, that's what he did. And so now uh, Malachi says, Behold, I will send you, Elijah the prophet, before this great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And, and he's going to have a particular job to do, a particular work. He, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children... And the hearts of the children to their fathers. That's, that's really what he was going to do. There's a returning here. So what's he mean by that? What would we expect when this Elijah comes? Well, one of two things, and I think really they can go together. First this. When he speaks of returning the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children, it's very likely that he simply means that he's going to return them to the covenant of their fathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember that uh, when Jesus was speaking to a group of religious leaders, they claimed to be children of Abraham. And he said, if you were children of Abraham, then uh, you would do what Abraham did. And so there's a sense in which even Jesus is calling them back to the God of Abraham, calling them back to the fathers of the covenant, if you will. And, and so, so this Elijah would come and he would, he would, he would call the, the children, if you will, the Israelites, back to the fathers and the fathers to the children. Because there's a sense in which Abraham didn't recognize these people as his own. And so he's saying, no, I want to I bring them back to this, this, this covenant. I want to restore that. I want to have you repent and return and worship the true and living God, as your fathers did, as I covenanted with them. But you see, once that happens, then literal fathers, dads, will love their children. And if their children return to this covenant, then their children to the fathers. And we would see then in the context of this community, real love. And you see, that's what this community is to be, is to be a community of real love. And it begins, as it's always begun, in this unit of the family, children and parents, together. And so you see the the, the deep necessity of 
fathers leading families, fathers loving children. See the great necessity of children loving fathers, honoring them. You remember that that commandment, honor your father and mother, is, as the apostle pointed out in Ephesians chapter 6, the first commandment with a promise. And that promise is, children, honor your father and mother so that your days may be long in the earth, so that it may go well with you. You see, when there is a community where fathers are loving their children, when families are well, then there is a community of harmony, not rebellion. And he says, if if that doesn't happen, then the land will be cursed. We're not ancient Israel. But I think the warning for us is obvious. Now, this Elijah who was to come, uh, Jesus identified as John the Baptist. Uh, We saw it in in this that I read earlier from Matthew chapter 17. That on this mount of transfiguration, Elijah and Moses come, amazingly, the one, the law of Moses and Elijah. They come with Jesus. There they are. He's transfigured. They're talking with him about, as the other gospel would put it, the exodus that's to come for Jesus. And, and there they are together. But Jesus is signaled out. And the, and the Father says, now listen to him. He's the one now. He's the one about whom you should listen. And the disciples uh, speak to him and say, well, wow, Elijah has come. Uh, all things restored Jesus, why then do you have to die? In a sense, that's the whole attitude here. And Jesus said, well, Elijah has come. And he's come as as John the Baptist. And uh, he came to restore all things. And their sense in this, because Jesus has just told them he's going to die, their sense in this, well, if he's restored all things, then, then why do you need to die? And there's a sense that Jesus says of John the Baptist, well, he came and they killed him. He prepares my way, I will die too. Because you see, the prophets of old, like Malachi, when they would see something coming, they often saw one big event. The one big thing, the awesome and great and powerful day of the Lord. And they kind of merged every event together in this one big event. And what happens is, as this plays out in history, we we see the discrete events that are part of that one big, awesome, great day of the Lord. And so, yes, this... John the Baptist would come prepare the way of the Lord, but, but all things wouldn't be restored, restored, not in their final consummation. Oh, yes, he would call the people to repentance, and, and some no doubt did. We saw in the ministry of John the Baptist that, that, yes, he would call people to repentance, and there was repentance. But for restoration to happen, then, of course, Jesus must die. And so he comes, he comes himself to die. And so this Elijah for us has come. We look back, they look forward to it. But we can see that the the, the goal of the grand scheme of it is to bring restoration. Us to the fathers, the fathers to us, fathers to children, children to fathers. All of that in a harmonious society. There's one more thing about Elijah, this Elijah to come. I'm going to take a huge risk here. 
I ask you to turn to Revelation in chapter 11. It's often difficult to grab a section out of Revelation. It's often difficult to do that after you've already preached for 30 minutes. But there's something here I want us to see. And I don't think it's that difficult. Although, I remember once when I was in seminary, one of my professors made a very profound point from a very obscure and controversial passage. And I said to him, Dr. Klein, how can you make such a profound point from such a difficult passage? And he said, if you understand it the way I do, it's not difficult. Lest I say, let me explain this to you. Revelation chapter 11. And as I read this, I'll annotate a bit, but when I get to a certain place, not too many verses in, I want to read those verses and I want you to think of who they remind you of. All right? You get to a particular point, I want you to think about who these ones remind you of. Verse 1, Revelation chapter 11. Then I, the I there is John, then I was giving a measuring rod like a staff. Now when he says a measuring rod, remember... This book is filled with symbolism. So we need to listen to the symbols and go someplace else. That is, listen to them and go where they're pointing us to. And when he says, I want you to measure something, he's saying, God is saying in a sense, I want you to know that I know the boundaries of this place. And I know this place. This place is mine. I care for this place. I want you to measure that out because it's mine. So that's the sense of it here. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure, here's what you're going to measure, the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Now remember, this is very symbolic, all of these symbols, and so he's not really measuring a real temple necessarily. The question is, what does that mean, this temple, the altar, and all who worship there? Well, the, the temple of God always represents the very presence of God. So he said, This is where I am. This is my presence at my altar amongst the people who worship me, that is, amongst my people. So what he's doing here is he's measuring out, if you will, the people of God. It's happened all throughout the book of Revelation, various expressions. He's sealed those who are his, all right? So then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar to those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it's given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city. And so he says, okay, here's my people, here's not my people. And they will uh, uh, trample over the holy city for 42 months. Don't get hung up. It's just a period of time, short period of time, by the way. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days. Now, if you do the math with a little bit of... uh, calendar work, you'll find that uh, 42 months and 1260 days is about the same. So it's about the same period of time. He says, I've got two witnesses. Don't think of two separate witnesses. Think of this. When the Bible speaks of two witnesses, what does it mean? It means with two witnesses, we establish the truth. So he's saying there's going to be truth here, and I'm going to establish truth. So I've got Two witnesses, they'll prophesy. So this prophesying is going to establish the truth. Verse 4. These are the two olive trees 
and the two lampstands. In other words, these two witnesses are also the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Now, when he refers to olive trees, isn't this fun? When he refers to olive trees, he's going back to a prophecy of Zechariah, who speaks of olive trees. Now, and there, what he's referring to is these men in Zechariah of Zerubbabel and Joshua. Zerubbabel was a king and Joshua a priest. So he's saying these two witnesses, this, that which comes to establish truth, is, is are, are rulers and priests, if you will. They represent me. They have authority there. And, um, and two lampstands. When the book of Revelation talks about lampstands, talking about church. Seven lampstands in the beginning of Revelation, the churches. And so what's he saying? He's saying here there's going to be this authority that comes to establish truth. It's going to prophesy. It's going to be a priestly and a kingly role. And it's going to be lampstands. It's going to be this, I think. He's saying, listen, these days my church will come and they will establish this truth. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, what's the church? The the church is the pillar, the buttress, if you will, of truth. So here we have the church basically saying, you say, why didn't he just say that? And I go, I don't know. Because then it wouldn't have been as fun. Verse 5. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he's doomed to be killed. In other words, he's saying this church can't be destroyed. People come against it, the gates of hell can't prevail. Now listen to this. Who does this remind you of? They, that is the two witnesses, which is the church, they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophecy. Now, does that remind you of anybody who kept the rain from coming? Do you remember Elijah to King Ahab and said, it's just not going to rain. And then, who does this remind you of? And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Who does that remind you of? A guy named Moses, the Nile turned to blood, and the plagues came. Now, what does that all mean? This, I think, that Elijah has come, prepared the way of the Lord. But there's still this ministry, this spirit of Elijah and Moses, and it lives in the life of the church. Because the power that they exerted as authoritative witnesses of the truth is the power that the church continues to assert as authoritative witnesses of the truth. Remember that Jesus said to Peter, he says, you, the church, you have the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now I know that we don't always feel that powerful. But when you realize that where else can anyone know the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are the ones who guard that deposit, as Paul writes to Timothy. We guard that deposit. We have that, that we have the very keys of the kingdom. And we need to, to, to know that even though it doesn't always feel that way, even though it doesn't look that way, we have the very power of Elijah and Moses, that same spirit that, that gave them power and it still is operable in the life of the church. When Paul writes to the church in Rome, what does he say about the gospel? 
He says, the gospel is what? The power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Ever thought about that? I'm sure you have if you're a Christian because that power has come upon you. Do you realize that just the word of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ working by his spirit changed everything about you? It's the power of the gospel. Do you realize that when we speak and declare the gospel of Jesus to people, our children, our friends, our neighbors, we pay someone to go somewhere and to to do that, however that gospel goes, would you realize that that those words of the gospel are powerful to change everything about a person's life? And so we're not called to do the crazy stuff that Elijah and Moses did. Uh, not very many people did. In fact, Elijah and Moses, they were pretty much the, the crazy ones in the Bible. I mean, you go and you see all the things that, that happened in the course of their life by their word. So, so we don't go out and do that. What we do is we tell people about Jesus. And what he's saying here is that's the two witnesses. That confirms the truth. The church is the truth of Jesus. And so we go out and make that proclamation. And, and it has the same power as those who went before us, like Elijah and Moses, to bring blessing and curse. Uh, Vern Poitras wrote a book called The Returning King. And on this passage, he speaks like this. He says, The two witnesses perform miraculous signs in judgment. In a manner reminiscent of Moses and Elijah, two great miracle-working prophets of the Old Testament. Like Moses and Elijah, the church bears prophetic witness. We call people to repentance and warn of coming judgment. Our total message includes not only the good news of salvation in Christ, but also the revelation of God's character, which implies that judgment against evildoers is inevitable. Our message is one of power. Power to save and power to punish. It's not an arbitrary power to do with as we see fit, but a power that comes from God, which we exercise only as servants who proclaim a message that we cannot alter. He says, the picture given here is extreme, and it is as we read in Revelation. And for good reason. In most of life, when people examine their conscious motives, they find confusing mixtures. The saints are followers of Christ, that's us, but their obedience is flawed and inconsistent, that's me. Non-Christians are in rebellion against God, but their rebellion is likewise inconsistent. They're not as bad as they could be, but are restrained in mysterious ways. They find themselves, albeit from wrong motives, admiring and imitating some of the good that they see around them. But this mixture of motives can easily obscure the seriousness of the most fundamental conflict in history between God and his enemies. Revelation puts the spotlight on this fundamental conflict and therefore depicts good and evil in black and white fashion. The two witnesses are supremely powerful witnesses. Conversely, their opponents are supremely hostile opponents. The inhabitants of the earth not only want to see the witnesses dead, but unabashedly and unashamedly rejoice and celebrate in their death, indicating that the full hardness of their position 
Such polarization of allegiance is the reality of our world at a fundamental level. Revelation gives us a look behind the obscuring curtain of civilizing and moderating ploys that conceal our deepest allegiances. This lesson is very important. In your own life, look for the deadly conflict and persevere unflinchingly in witness and loyalty to Christ. In the lives of non-Christians, look beneath the veneer of pleasantries and see the deadly opposition that only divine power can stop. Witness is a powerful factor in spiritual warfare. But it fails to win unless God renews, renews people's hearts. What's the point? The point is this, Malachi was calling the people to look back to Moses. He was calling them to look forward to Elijah. In, in our day, we're called in a similar fashion. We're called to look back to the cross. And there we see sin, the judgment of God, the love and blessing of God, all there. And we proclaim that message, the power of Moses. And Elijah, that is to say, as we proclaim that message, we proclaim it so that people would know that there is blessing and curse, salvation and judgment. And then you see, for us, as we look at that, we're humbled by it. And as we're humbled by it, uh, we fear God. As we fear him, we worship him, give him praise for who he is. We give him thanks for what he's done. And in humble submission, we joyfully obey. Let's pray. Father in heaven, pray for me, for us that we would worship you rightly, that we would know this truth, proclaim it well, live out its implications. Father, even though we don't see all that perhaps those others who went before us saw in the great contest between Moses and Pharaoh or Elijah and the prophets of Baal, who know that that's still happening. It's happening in the world we can't see, but then we see it because we see lives changed. So, Father, I would pray that you would use us individually and as a church in such a way that the gospel would go forth and people would hear it and believe. That they would know that there literally is no other way. No matter how much we kick against it, no matter how much we run from it still, in all of our kicking and all of our running. Uh, there is no hope for us apart from Christ. So Father, I pray each of us, each with whom we have opportunity to speak, would be humbled, would fear you, would yield to you, would trust in you, would worship you. Father, we know that in these days, even in various parts of our country, certainly throughout the world, there are those who are believers who see this very close and personal, who see the hostility of, of those who are against Christ and 
who are persecuted, we pray for them, that you would be with them, that you would help them, that they would have a sense of their witnesses pleasing to you and that it's strong and powerful. Be with them, Father. Father, for those who find themselves on this day in difficulty or in some sense of anxiety that you would be with them, we pray for those who love those who are dying and that you would give them strength in the midst of that. We pray for those who are recovering from surgery. pray for Eva Kramer, God. We pray for Sheila Bloom as well. That you would be with them. Pray for Nathan Slater. Father, we pray for Courtney Huffman as she's recovering in the hospital. We pray for Roger Hack as he's facing surgery this week. Matt Westfall as well. Father, be with them. Father, we come before you and ask that you would give us strength to live, to persevere, to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction.